0: Hi, I am Dr Bryn Hodgkiss. I work within the Digital Urgent and Emergency Care team as Head of Transformation Strategy, and I would like to officially introduce you to our podcast series on the patient experience of urgent and emergency care. In today's first episode, we'll be discussing three main areas surrounding the patient experience work that we've spent the past few months delivering. Firstly, we want to give you some insight into this work and go into more detail as to why this work was so important to do. We want to dive through our research methodology and lastly, give you some teasers into some of our initial insights. Before I introduce you to our wonderful guests who are with us today, I would like to give you some background information about myself and how we are all linked together or came together to deliver this larger project looking at the patient experience of UEC. Occasionally in the podcast, we're going to use the term UEC. That's just a shortened form of words for urgent and emergency care. When I first joined NHS England as part of a a regional UEC transformation team, I noticed something strange. That is, we would have lots of meetings when we designed better ways for patients to move smoothly through the urgent care system. We'd insist that if everyone would just do these things, then more people would get the care they needed in the right place from the right person at the right time. Then we'd have a tea break and we'd start swapping stories of how it rarely was for ourselves or our friends and family over the past weekend. I heard colleagues talk about traveling to three different emergency departments to get the right medication for their daughter or having a sister-in-law whose elbow went black while she was waiting for care, or was getting stuck in a bed in an emergency department while admission is delayed. And I figured, if this is what's happening for us, people who know the NHS, how must it be for the public at, at large? And that what was so exciting about getting the chance to do this work. Yes, there have been lots of previous research into the public's experience of UEC, and one of the aims of this research was to draw a number of those perspectives together to shape a definitive narrative of how people experience urgent and emergency care, both positive and negative, to create a view that is balanced and nuanced and also takes into account some of the digital changes that have accelerated with the COVID-19 pandemic. And why does this need to be done now? Firstly, we would like to better inform UEC strategy and policy here in NHS England UEC strategy is being continually refreshed and we recognize that this strategy needs to have patients views very strongly represented. <laughs> Secondly, we did this work to complement ongoing digital design work within urgent and emergency care. And thirdly, we know that thousands of people every year are well cared for in the UEC system. And this is down to the hard work of doctors, nurses, paramedics, 111 staff and commissioners who all work together to run our service. And we want to design a system that makes their daily work a little bit easier to do. Turning to digital services within UEC, while they affect millions of people every year, they've been largely hidden from public view. This is because they've mostly worked behind the scenes to assess people and direct them to where they need to be seen. Increasingly, though, patients are directly interacting with digital services through platforms like the NHS app and 111 Online. And digital services are an ever more important facet of the NHS's efforts to improve access and seamlessly move patients to where they need to be seen, as well as helping us better understand demand and capacity and capacity and so to design better digital services we have to start with the understanding of the experience of the people who use that service so we in the NHS England transformation directorate of which the digital urgent and emergency care team is part commissioned a research consortium led by the Eastern Academic Health Science Network to conduct a mixed method research study being a consortium There were a number of different organisations involved, each bringing expertise in their chosen research methods and a different angle to our inquiry. So now I'm going to stop talking and start the exciting bit, which is to welcome Eastern AHSN and the Research Consortium. Thank you for joining us today. And could you introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Hi Bryn, my name is Dr. Mark Lomax, I'm the CEO of PEP Health. PEP Health stands for the Patient Experience Platform and we have a variety of ways to capture the patient experience voice.
2: Hi Bryn, my name is Miles Sibley, Uh, I run the Patient Experience Library, that's an online database of uh, research into um, people's experiences in healthcare and particularly in the NHS. It holds many thousands of documents from all kinds of sources, academic, um, health charities, policy think tanks, you name it, we've got it.
3: Hello everybody, I'm Louis Horsley, I'm a consultant at Traverse in the Health and Care team and uh, Traverse is a social purpose consultancy that supports better decision making through the power of inclusion.
0: Someone who couldn't be with us today is Caroline Angel, who is the Director of Patient Safety at Eastern AHSN. Now, the AHSN network is funded by the NHS and the Office for Life Sciences to bring together academia, citizens, health services and industry to realise the value of innovations more quickly and ultimately to deliver positive health impact for patients.
1: And we were delighted that Caroline brought us all together to to work on this piece of commissioned work, recognising the importance of uh, bringing the patient experience to the work that you're working on here, Bryn. One of the ways we're doing this is bringing together all the right partners with the right skills to bring about change we're also bringing together the different threads of the listening exercise to ensure that we can all see the patterns in what we're hearing and collate what we collect into a really useful report for providers and local health systems
0: so without further ado let's get on with the first element of our research which was the rapid review led by miles and the patient experience library now I'm sure all our listeners are really eager to find out what went into the rapid review and the methodology for this, but before we go, before we dive into that, for those listeners who might not be too familiar with a rapid review, could you explain what exactly it is and what is its importance to the patient experience work? Yeah,
3: okay.
2: Um, a rapid review is basically a trawl through uh, qualitative um, research. So, written reports, uh, studies, um, papers from academic journals and so on, and the aim is to uh, go through all of that, review it, um, extract the learning and uh, make sense of it, and to do so quickly, hence rapid review. And the important thing here is that it's not like working with quantitative data where you have numerical data sets and you'll be analysing those to look for percentages or ratios things like that Uh, we're talking about working with uh, written literature where the challenge is uh, different styles of report writing uh, different ways of describing findings and conclusions so there's no um, neat way of calculating your way uh, towards a conclusion as you can do when you're working with numbers with a literature review you have to take a, a different approach and i'll describe in a minute Uh, how we did that. Um, But uh, to answer your point about uh, what was the importance of this piece of the work, um, this was the kind of foundation in a sense for the whole project. So we were starting, we were going into this trying to understand patient experience of urgent and emergency care services and the very first question was what do we already know? We deliberately didn't want to start with a blank sheet Um, We wanted to base uh, the whole inquiry, the whole project on existing research and evidence so that we weren't just wasting time and reinventing wheels. So the literature review does that. It says, what is the existing evidence around all of this? What do we already know? And how can we use that as a basis then for the further uh, focus group work and so on that we wanted to do?
0: Wonderful. And how many years did we look back on the literature?
2: Sure. So um, we actually went back four years. But what if, if I describe the process we went through, so, so I think of a, a literature review as a kind of a, a three-stage process. Firstly, the search. Uh, secondly, what I call sift and sort. Uh, and then thirdly, the sense-making bit. Uh, but actually, before we could do any of that, uh, the very first thing we had to do was um, work out what's the research question? What's the, what, what, what's, what are we actually trying to find out here? And we did that with the members of the um, Project Steering Group uh, and the, the research question we came up with, which was quite carefully defined, was what are the experiences of urgent and emergency care from the perspective of patients and public, including access via digital and remote channels? And, and everything in the in the rapid review, the literature review, came off that uh, research question using this three-stage process, search, sift and sort, sense making. So if I start first of all talking about um, the, the search and how we did that, this was going to be a, a, an online database uh, search for existing evidence. Uh, so we had to come up first of all with a search strategy. So. This is like if you imagine uh, you're trying to find something on Google, and you, you have to, the first question is, what am I going to write in the box? Uh, so uh, it's exactly the same, or very similar uh, with this. We had to think about what are the search terms we're going to use to start answering that research question. And we um, came up with two sets of search terms. First of all, a set of terms denoting emergency. So we were looking for things like accident and emergency, ambulance, crisis care walk-in centres, out of hours, uh, uh, all that sort of thing. Uh, And then we had a second um, set of search terms denoting uh, digital, because we also wanted to understand people's experience of urgent emergency care via digital and remote access. So we had a set of terms like apps, NHS 111, NHS online, remote, telehealth, virtual, and so on, another collection of search terms. and that was the basis on which we started the search. Now we also had to apply some exclusions, by which I mean uh, this was going to be a rapid review, had to be carried out in a matter of weeks, so we couldn't let it sprawl, we couldn't go on for months, we had to put some pretty tight parameters around it to to narrow the focus of the search. Um, So what we did there was um, we, we looked first at place, We said, we're going to look for research literature that that is UK only. We don't want to know about people's experiences of urgent and emergency care in America, for example. So first exclusion was we said it's going to be UK only. Then we did the thing about the time period. How far are we going to go back in the literature? And we said four years because we knew that would give us ample evidence. But also it gave us two years pre-COVID and two years during COVID and we thought that might be worth looking at see if there's any difference. Um, there was also something about the sources we were going to look, uh, look from. So uh, we decided we would go for only open access research literature, stuff that's already been published, already available, free of charge online. We didn't go for anything that was behind a journal paywall or where you would have to buy it from uh, booksellers, that sort of thing, so open access only Actually, there's an important point here about inclusion, uh, because uh, we decided we would go for both formal and informal research literature. Now, what I mean by that is that formal research literature is um, the kind of thing that um, uh, comes from usually from academic institutions, uh, is peer reviewed, and it's published via uh, recognized medical or health sector journals. Um, That was definitely going to be worth looking at. Uh, but there's also uh, a huge amount of informal literature, or what academics would call grey literature. Now this is stuff that comes from very reputable and credible sources. It would be coming out of places like the Healthwatch Network, which is the statutory patient voice organisation across England. Also policy think tanks, health charities and so on. But It's not peer-reviewed, by and large, and it's not published in journals. It's just published straight online. But we we wanted to have both of those, formal and informal, side by side, because we knew that would give us a better or more rounded base for understanding people's experiences. Uh, And then the final thing in terms of um, Uh, exclusions was we decided we would just search from one database, which is the Patient Experience Library, which I'm responsible for. Um, That's a research database that specialises in literature, research literature on patient experience exclusively. Uh, It's mainly UK, there's over 70,000 documents in there so it was perfect for a very quick rapid review, had to be done in a matter of weeks. Uh, So uh, that was that. So that was the way we did the search and then we had to go on to the second two pieces if you'd like me to talk about those.
0: And before we go on to the second two pieces because I know it's qualitative and you, you don't judge the value of qualitative research by how many documents you looked at but how many documents did you look at to get to the results?
2: Okay well um, so in order to that's a really good question because when we did that first set of search using all those different search terms, we had thousands and thousands of documents came back via the searches. So that's where we had to go into this second phase of the process, which is the sift and sort. So the first thing we had to do was a deduplication exercise. Now you can imagine if you're searching across a set of terms like let's say ambulance, and then you also search using the search term paramedic you're going to get a lot of overlap. Um, uh, uh, one document is going to appear in both sets of, uh, the, the, there's a good chance of duplication that documents appear in both sets of uh, search results. So the first thing we had to do was go through these thousands of uh, search results we got and just deduplicate the whole lot and that whittled it down a lot. Um, but there was a second thing we had to do which was we had to filter for relevance. Because again, if you're using those kind of search terms, and you know from searching with Google, you search on Google, but you generally don't go beyond the first page because after that, what's there might be relevant, but it's kind of it's the rubbish you're not really bothered about. So we had to do something similar. Um, again, if you're searching for, uh, let's say, uh, accident and emergency. Um, You might get a report that is uh, uh, mainly or entirely about people's experiences of accident and emergency services, but equally you will get many reports that are about, let's say, people's experiences in ABC Trust or people's experiences in XYZ Hospital. And it might be that somewhere on page 14 of the report there's a couple of paragraphs about A and E, but actually it's not really telling you anything much. So what we did was a relevance filter where we went through all the report after we deduplicated went through all the remaining reports and threw away all the ones that only mentioned urgent and emergency care in passing and then we were left with the ones that were mainly or entirely about the topic we were really interested in and the number Bryn (laughs) was uh, we had um, 359 documents relating to people's experiences of urgent and emergency care and a further 150 relating to a digital or remote access so we had 500 documents in total which was plenty to go at yeah
0: over four years so that is that over is a four nice, years that is yeah, a nice yeah. number yeah
3: yeah, yeah.
2: Um, and having got that shortlist we then had to work out what on earth all these 500 documents were and what they were telling us. So that's where we went into the third part of the exercise, which is the sense-making. So at that point uh, we've got these 500 documents and what we had to do was we had to read every single one of them. Um, I mean it was a pretty huge task, very laborious, um, but we, uh, we went through all 500 documents, we read them all, uh, and, uh, and what we did was we extracted the key findings and quotations and learning points. Um, And the way we extracted those, it wasn't randomly, we actually did that within uh, what we would call a coding framework. So what we had was we had four main themes that we were looking for. We were looking for awareness and decision making. So, So how do people understand what urgent and emergency care services are? Do they know the difference between A&E and a Minor Injuries Unit and a walk-in centre? So, and how do they decide which one to go for? So awareness and decision-making was the first key theme. Secondly, access. How easy or difficult is it for people to get to these services? Thirdly, service quality from the point of view of patients and public. Doesn't matter what Care Quality Commission inspections say, what do the patients think? Um, and then a uh, fourth theme was about uh, any looking for any differences in expectations and behavior. So do older people have different views and expectations from younger people, or men versus women, or different ethnic groups, and so on? Uh, we were looking for those uh, four key themes. And within those, we then broke down to f- a further 14 sub-themes which I won't list one by one because <laughs> it'll take forever. Uh, but these are based on a series of hypotheses uh, that the project steering group had come up with uh, before we even started the search. Uh, so I'll just give you one example. So for example on the thing about people's awareness there was a main theme about people's awareness of urgent and emergency care services and the a couple of the sub-themes for that were, was uh, what is people's understanding of their UEC options uh, how do they know what's on offer uh, and another one was to what extent is people's behavior influenced for example by friends and family as to whether to go into urgent emergency care or not and if so which strand to go down um, and that was what that final piece was enabled us from these 500 documents to group and categorize and start making sense of what all this stuff was telling us.
0: Awesome and as you said that was um, the foundation which yeah. we had to build yes. pretty quickly yes. um, upon which then the other methodologies could then build so we yes. could sort of start to build an incremental view of what patient experience was looking like.
2: Exactly right, uh, starting from what we already knew from the literature.
0: Perfect, thank you for that awesome introduction um, and now we're going to go on to the next part, the next method we used which was around social listening. Now, (laughs) coming from a non-techie background, I didn't know what social listening was before I started this research. So Mark from Pep Health, could you tell us what social listening?
1: I certainly can. So before I leap into that, what I'm just going to do is just give you 30 seconds on where it came from because i think it really tees up the context about why why we do what we do so one of our founders used to work within the intelligence and analytics team at the cqc and there they were looking at reams and reams of quantitative data about trusts and health organizations trying to work out the quality where were their inspectors where should they go how should this all be analyzed and what they realised after years of looking at these millions of different data points on the quantitative side was it wasn't very helpful for their inspectors. And even when they thought there was a high risk or a low risk situation, when the inspectors went in there, they could find completely the opposite. And it started the journey then of thinking well, if quantitative data is not a good predictor of quality within healthcare, what about the qualitative data and what about the patient voice and what can we actually learn from the patient voice that can really help us understand healthcare and that is the starting point to why we do social listening now there's a few different names that sit around this but in essence what we're doing is we have built our own ai ml platform to capture the patient voice in the digital landscape from a variety huge variety of different sources so you might be surprised but there's a huge volume of commentary put onto social media, online review sites, chat forum sites talking about people's experiences of care in real time. And with those little nuggets of information that each and every patient posts, or it might be their carers or their loved ones, we can build up this picture in real time across the whole of the country about what's happening for healthcare purposes. We capture, to give you a sense of scale, about one million comments per month. And we are capturing data across every hospital, walk-in centre, ambulance trust, GP centres, and using exactly the same methodology up and down the length from breadth of the country. So it can start to paint a picture of what's actually happening for patients. And so uh, we started in 2018, and so very conveniently for the purposes of this work, we have a four-year library of patient <laughs> comments, almost as if we'd sort of thought about this before we started, which is brilliant. And so we could look back at that tracking that longitudinal picture of what have patients have been saying about all the different parts of the UEC network and filling in indeed some additional gaps like 111 and looking at what's been said there in the digital landscape as well to build up this 360 degree picture of what's been said there and when we do that we look at the overall sentiment but we also with our models we've broken it down so that we can look specifically at things like access things like effective treatment uh, how was the communication how was the environment did did the, the right level of emotional support be provided to those individuals? So it can really give us the ability to look where is it good and poor, and why is it good and poor. Mm. And that can give us a really interesting overview about what's happening across the country. And so that was our starting point for social listening and working with, with the, col- the, the collaboration here to really think, OK, for UEC, where are so sort of, we know now the question, so let's use this data set to try and sort of really give some meaningful insights about what's happening across the country.
0: Wonderful. And again, I'm going to use the, the numbers. So you said you captured sort of millions of, of records every day. Mm-hmm. So how many sort of of those records for the purposes of this research did you, did you sort of filter it down to as you sort of look through those various facets and various themes?
1: Sure. So it falls down quite a bit. And I suppose in terms of our methodology and what we do, the first thing when we collect all these comments about hospitals is, first of all, we want the, the data set that is the real comments talking about real episodes of care. As you can imagine, there's quite a lot of people that offer opinions about care, but they might not actually be talking about receiving care. So we are able to take those out. And there's also a plethora of other things that you find on there the classic one or the sort of the one that so I always use as an example is you'd be surprised how many people use the joke on social media that Hospital X is the best one because they were born there well that's <laughs> very funny but it's sort of once you've seen it 10,000 times it's sort of, it's limited to sort of the, the value that that brings so we scratch out all of those and then for the purposes of this work as well we wanted to sort of get, bring it down to the Uec level what that left us with was from millions of total comments it left us with data set in the high tens of thousands that were all relevant comments talking about the UEC component and that was the bit that we then started to really drill down and unpick what we actually found in that.
0: Awesome, so so thinking of like the the value of the Miles's work in the patient experience library is looking back um, on the published literature saying, has anything like this been done before? What has anyone found before? And then layered on top of that, then what social listening does is find the very informal literature that exists in the digital space and make sense of that. Um, Have I got that correct? You have.
1: I mean, I suppose the easiest way to sort of really imagine it is that this is a continuous data feed that we're capturing all the time. So we build up a picture of the pre-COVID, through seasonality, what changes in winter to summertime, COVID starts two years or so ago, what suddenly happens to that patient voice and that patient narrative. And we can see all these trends and fluctuations in real time as we start to sort of piece it together. And what we know from work we've already done is that although it's done in an informal, freely given setting, we've been able to empirically prove that it works, we've been able to show that it actually is an accurate predictor of what CQC inspectors find when they go into establishments, and when people do some of these national surveys, cancer, maternity, uh, A&E, when we've correlated when they did that national survey and what did we find, there's a very strong correlation, but what the typical national Surveys miss is what happened for the other eleven months in the year, and there can be a huge amount of fluctuation that sometimes gets lost in those national surveys.
0: Wonderful. So, so that's added another layer of value to
1: exactly.
2: our
0: research inquiry. And,
1: and I think there's another important
2: point as well, Bryn, which is that the the literature review which we carried out, um, a lot, of, well, all of those reports really and studies and so on um, are are carried out in structured ways. So there will be a team of Uh, researchers or people Mm. in a health charity or whatever it might be who are saying, what do we want to find out? And then they construct a questionnaire or or a focus group or something uh, and they ask the patients and public for their views but within a kind of predetermined set of questions. Now that's absolutely fine and there's value Mm. and there's rigour in doing that what Mark is finding from the social listening is patients just saying whatever they want, whenever they want to. It's completely unmediated. And I think that then gives you two data sets, both coming from patients in public, but one quite carefully structured in a mediated kind of way by researchers, and another one where it's just straight from the patients. And I think there's huge value in having that comparison as well.
0: Fantastic, and, and very well put. Now we're going to add the third. Um, and equally magic ingredient to the mix, which is when we started to look at sort of focus groups and telephone interviews. So we've done the literature. We moved on to sort of the social listening element. And now we're speaking to actual real life humans. So Louis, tell us more about that. Great. Thanks, Bryn. There was kind of two strands
3: to um, capturing those personal stories and and views from patients directly. One was through a series of interviews um, which uh, Eastern Academic Health Science Network was responsible for leading and the other was through a series of focus groups uh, with patients um, which is what I at Traverse was uh, responsible for for delivering and leading on. but in both cases, these people were recruited um, using a professional market recruitment agency called Ethnic Opinions and they had a series of screener questions that they worked through to make sure that we were capturing a kind of diverse mix of views but also to ensure that people had accessed urgent and emergency care services in the
0: last six months. Uh, and, and that's important is because if it's longer than six months people's memory starts to to
3: fade quite rapidly? Yeah, already we're asking people to recall on their own personal experiences um, and so the longer you leave for that to kind of stew, the less potentially accurate it could be. But also um, we wanted to make sure that this was well and truly rooted in people's experiences during Mm. COVID-19. So to kind of capture the the emotions coming off their experience of UEC as, as soon as possible.
0: And w- what is the importance of having that good representation? Because you, you mentioned what ethnic opinions did. Could you just tell us more about why, why we should bother about that? Yeah, so be- because a big
3: strand of this project was around the use of digital means of providing care, um, either in person or remotely, we wanted to make sure that we were hearing from people who were digitally excluded. Um, and so people were recruited, for example, using the phone. Um, going through a a kind of database of people who've expressed an interest in taking part in this research. And by understanding and asking screening questions to determine their level of, for example, say comfort using social media um, or their level of experience using different um, laptops, mobile phones, smartphones, tablets, we could determine whether these people were actually digitally excluded or not. And then we were able to tailor the research methods to that individual to make sure that we could capture their experience as well.
0: Oh, wonderful. So you could use online, you could use telephone, but then you'd also do face-to-face. Exactly. exactly.
3: So the interviews, the depth interviews, which are one-on-one, so one researcher, one participant, um, were completed over the phone to make sure that people had the best chance of possible of sharing their views and not relying on, Um, online tools and then the focus groups three of them uh, were delivered in person in a central London location so bringing people together in a room uh, and another two were delivered using Zoom and that allowed us to bring people from outside of London to take part so really trying to cater to as many different needs um, and barriers that may may pop up.
0: Awesome so if if Miles had caught the people that could participate in a survey um, and Mark had caught the people who make comments online, you're catching the people who can't do either sometimes.
3: Can't do either or don't feel comfortable doing. Someone might have the skill set and access to the technology required, but they just don't feel like it's a means by which they want to share their experiences of health and care services. They'd rather talk to somebody,
0: um, a real person. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, How did the the focus groups run? So, like I said, we had three of them
3: run in person in central London location and two were run remotely using Zoom. But both followed exactly the same format. And that was a combination of some talking from the front and then some facilitated group discussions. The um, talking from the front was basically providing an overview of the other research strands that had happened Um, already in the run up to this phase of the engagement. So some kind of key insights um, from the rapid evidence review and some key insights from the social listening. Um, And that's just to kind of inform participants a little bit about A, why they're there today, B, how we've got to this point and C, just to capture some reflections on some of the findings um, that have emerged from the research. And then after that, we broke into groups to have a facilitated discussion where each um, facilitator was assigned a persona. um, And a persona, in this case, is just a fictional character's experience of urgent and emergency care. Um, And after reading out uh, the story from this fictional character, the facilitator went through a series of kind of prompt questions to help steer the conversation and ultimately answer our research
0: question. Excellent. And how did people find the focus groups? People love having the opportunity
3: to share their stories in an environment where they feel safe. Yeah. So um, both safe in terms of you know m- reducing the risks of COVID transition as much as possible, all the kind of sanitary things you'd expect, but safe also in a kind of non-judgmental space. So um, our job at Traverse, of my job specifically within this project, is to create an environment where people feel like they can be open and share their views without being judged by either us as researchers or other participants. Because ultimately, we don't necessarily want everyone to agree, we want a diversity of experiences to be represented, but we want people to feel like they can share those without running the risk of upsetting somebody you're being told of.
0: Awesome. So it must have been quite a a welcoming environment. So once you had run these focus groups around the personas, how did you start making sense of the findings then?
3: Yeah, so whilst the conversations themselves would have felt quite free and unstructured and um, easy to to kind of participate in, behind the scenes there's a lot of structure and organisation to make sure that the content captured and shared across each of the focus groups follows a very similar pattern so we're getting some consistency so what we did is uh, we we built an analysis framework using the same hypotheses that have been running throughout the the duration of this project Um, and we took the transcripts from the workshops uh, read through them and tried to kind of add some narrative that either proved or went against the hypotheses that we were Mm -hmm. testing throughout the project as well as uh, pulling out some some quotes that kind of um, share how the participant felt about that specific topic throughout. So it's adding a bit of narrative, um, a bit of a kind of your personal experience to the findings.
0: Yeah. So you can sort of bring the findings to life. Exactly. Exactly. In obviously an anonymous way. <laughs> of course. Um, you know. So that's really interesting. So it's like we're now starting to sort of take some of the themes we found before, test them with a room full of real-life humans and start to add some of the nuance to the experience.
3: Yeah, and actually one thing that's interesting is when I do this kind of work, you know, the, the process that Miles and Mark just described is, to me at least, quite technically complex. Um, and some of the topics that emerge from these initial findings is also quite complex. But actually, members of the public, my rule of thumb is they're probably pick things up quicker than I will and so trying to explain the social listening in a way that made sense to me people picked up really really quickly and it just made sense oh yeah I see comments I look at other people's reviews of things and so it's quite interesting to run the process past participants as well as the content as well just to see if people reflect in in any way that might yeah be interesting
0: and it's kind of reassuring that it makes sense yeah. to a member of the public too, yeah. isn't it? Yeah,
3: exactly. Because I think there's always this discussion of breadth versus depth, right? So you can normally identify and look at a, a broad range of lots of different sources of information, but looking at that same information in depth is not as possible, because it just mm. takes too much time. Um, whereas the focus groups, you're speaking to less people. In this case, we spoke to about 60 people across all the focus groups, um, but you're having an hour and a half, two hours with them, so the conversation can be deeper. Yes. And so people who took part understood the value of using different methods, where you could be touching on broader numbers of people, but only taking a potential tweet or comment, or in this case, having more in-depth conversations as well.
0: Fantastic, so we start to add sort of depth to not only the historical narrative but sort of the current breadth that we've we've already gathered. So as you're saying, we've had the, you know, we've had the historical view of the rapid review of literature. We've had the additional sort of up to the minute quantitative data of social listening. And now we've had some of the depth of sort of focus groups and one-to-one interviews. So the last element was a survey. And this was a survey, again, run by PEP Health, so I'm going to turn back to Mark. So what were our reasons for picking a survey?
1: Yeah, so what we really wanted to do there was the survey, I think, was about 15 minutes in length for people to, uh, to fill in. And so it gave us the opportunity to get some really quite detailed questioning and to really sort of find out some of these variations. So. First of all we needed a bit of context setting and understanding what people understood by UEC and what interpretations and what things they might have used in the last period of time but also how recently was their last experience because as some of us have already mentioned on the on the podcast already after a period of time memory starts to fade and reflections can be a bit different so we were really interested in not just what they've used but when they've used it and then what those experiences actually were and then finally with those questions it was really sort of delving down into okay what type of digital solutions have you used what might you be happy to use in the future and trying to get a bit of a finger in the air to their level of digital savviness mm. and sort of what's the level of acceptability that sits out there and then the final part was a few demographic questions to really understand and t- for us to be able to go back and analyse between different affluence groups uh, different ethnicities uh, different parts of the country whether that's actually sort of generated some variations in experience that we could go back and look at further
0: oh excellent so and what's coming out to me as you're speaking is and it was something we all experienced in doing the research. Firstly, that it was a bit of a living beast. We did have to sort of adapt as we were finding as we were finding out things, we had to adapt the next steps to accommodate that. Um, and then what the survey was doing was almost giving us um, a last opportunity, a last bite of the cake. To, to look at okay, what is, start to narrow down. Let's look at the specifically the digital experience that we might not have captured using all the other methodologies. Um, it was really nice to hear. Actually, this is the first time I've heard it said out loud what we did. and It was like, oh yeah, it does fit together. It does start <laughs> to layer, which is which is always comforting. Um, now that we've gone through the uh, sort of the, the steps we followed, we'll just have a final sort of. Q&A session to pick up on anything you might have missed, any questions that popped into my head while other people were speaking. Um, I think the first, the first question I had was actually for you Mark about the social listening is uh, what does the social listening not include?
1: So I suppose the the most obvious one to sort of start with is it doesn't include those people that are not digitally present. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to bear that in mind with all the work that we're doing and thinking about future strategy. So we do see increasingly a lot of people are present and also if people are not present there are also proxy groups. Parents talk about their children's experience, uh, children talk about their parents' experience, especially when they're elderly, maybe with dementia, and so you do get opportunities to get some of these other voices, but we've just got to bear in mind that it's not everybody, but it's a good number that we're bringing together. I think the other one that's also worth bearing in mind in terms of what it doesn't cover is it's highly unstructured. So in terms of sort of the, the, the technical side of this, this has just been those little things that have been on people's minds. Could be good, could be negative, could be somewhere in between, but actually, It isn't a structured survey that is there, sort of when you can repeat it in exactly the same way in six months' time, 12 months' time. But what we rely on is something called the wisdom of crowds phenomenon, or what we call the wisdom of patients, is that when you have a great big number of patients, you bring them all together, and actually they are very accurate in determining what the right answer is in terms of their reflections as a group.
0: Actually, that is really interesting and the, the other question I wanted to ask and this, you know, feel free to answer it any other sort of panellists, but um, was when we speak about patient experience, quite often our, our minds gravitate towards negative patient experience and actually we were looking at positive and negative. So looking at the social listening, what, was there any sort of ratio you found of positive experiences to negative?
1: So a few different things to, to, to that whole, whole component. One is that people, when you say, this is what we do, go, oh, social media, it must be full of negative comments. It's just a, a flow of them all. And it is true that there are a whole heap of negative comments that are on social media. But one of the, the drawbacks to the social media platforms is that with their own algorithms, they bring to your feed The things that they think are going to get the most likes, the most retweets, and that is unfortunately the negative comments. And so when people post the positive comments, they've got equal value, but actually they're not brought into people's feeds. So without technology like us to unearth them and to, if you like, mine them, they get lost. And so what we bring together is this balancing act of not just who's been liked the most, but actually taking each voice as a democratic vote if you like in terms of what their opinions are and bringing that all together. And so usually we actually see, even on social media, there are more positive than negative comments that are actually out there, which is great. I would say though in recent times and coming out of COVID, the number of negative comments we have seen an increase in and the the sort of, there are some more recent challenges which keen to share, I think in the next podcast about some of those results. But actually sort of it is a dynamic place and we need to keep a really close eye on sort of what's happening sort of month on month day to day
0: and uh, yeah that's really interesting living yeah
3: because we actually one of the participants i remember in, the, in one of the focus groups remarked on the same thing they said it's much easier to remember the negative experiences in some cases because they're more traumatic or even mm. in life threatening but actually the ones you don't remember for example you didn't have to wait that long and you got your routine checkup, and everything went fine and your car wasn't parked too far away you haven't really got much of a story to tell about that. And so yeah. it is worth bearing in mind that people will naturally veer towards the more negative, powerful experiences, apart from things like childbirth, where it's an amazing experience and everything's gone well, and those memories will stay.
2: There's, so- there's something else here though, I think, which we need to think carefully about, which is that the negative experiences that people report when they do, are not always what you might expect. So one of the big things in A&E, and of course it's it's absolutely critical at the moment, is waiting time. And as we all know, there are targets for waiting times in uh, A&E. One of the things we found from the uh, literature review uh, was that um, if people were waiting in A&E, as long as they weren't waiting there 24 hours or something, but, but if there was a bit of a breach of the four-hour wait, actually people weren't that bothered about that, and perhaps it's because they don't even know that that target exists. What was far more exercising them was the, the state of the waiting room, whether there was food and drink available if there was a long wait, whether they were given a sense of how long they might have to wait. So the experience of waiting was far more important to them than the target. And and that's something I think for people in the policy area to think
0: about. Yeah, and that, that's fascinating. The whole sort of last sort of segment's been fascinating because not only do, do our, our social media algorithms mean we only see the negative, our own natural human tendency to make stories around the negative means we only remember the negative. And then the positive that we actually do remember, as um, as Miles has just said, might not be the same positive as the people designing the system think it is, uh, which is really interesting. Um, So one of the things I also wanted to come back to was around you mentioned the personas in doing the focus group what did you base those personas around
3: yeah so we had we had four fictional characters um, to try and capture a range of different experiences demographics age etc and each persona had a kind of urgent and emergency care story and that story was based on some of the emergent findings from the rapid review and the social listening strands of the project to um, talk to and try and capture some of those factors that were relevant to the research hypotheses originally. So it was an amalgamation of some of the findings that were emerging from the work, some of the key points that wanted to be captured in the hypotheses. And then it was just a short story based off that. So, for example, one of the personas um, had had a previous negative experience of accessing urgent and emergency care. And that helped prompt conversations during the facilitated focus groups around that subject matter. So they were used as a kind of framework, really, to help prompt conversation um, and make sure that we're referring back to the the research objectives as well.
0: Fab now throughout recording this podcast i've had to hold myself back from saying and what did we find because that's going to come next in the the next podcast but in order to give people a little bit of the good stuff um i'll go to our uh, our panelists and and ask them could you tell us just one intriguing finding you came across um i know miles miles has mentioned something unexpected so While he thinks of another thing, (laughs) I'll come to, to you first. Mark, what was your unexpected finding?
1: So I think one of the ones that really sticks in my mind is when we were looking through the lens of access to UEC, what did we actually see? And I think that the two things that really leapt out to me were the, the geographic variation that we mm-hmm. saw across the country, but also the variation in the experience between the GPs, ambulances, and the acute settings, and actually looking at that sort of delta that's there. And I think it's it's so interesting to just think it's not a one-size-fits-all that we're actually operating in. And thinking about that breadth of what's actually out there, that looking forward to sort of sharing more of those results uh, next time we, we get together. But I think that variation was much bigger than I was expecting to see.
0: Right. So so what you were seeing was a, a, a real different mix of services and satisfaction depending on where people were.
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the, the sort of the cruder things that we've picked up upon looking across the whole of the NHS over the last few years and with COVID is that it's never been more turbulent, sort of coming out of COVID, with the challenges that individual organisations actually face. But actually, what we're seeing is that those that were sort of doing sort of a well, well a good job pre-COVID, even under incredible stresses, challenges, they've really been able to sort of keep sort of, perhaps, for many people in the public, a supply a surprisingly high level of patient experience in really challenging environments. And there have been, though, undoubtedly pockets where people, organisations, have just been under such desperate struggles with staffing and pressures on flow and the volume of patients that they've been asked to look after, that it is invariably had a, a negative impact on patient experience. And that delta between the good and the poor, we've never seen, in our four years of capturing this data as big a delta between the good and the poor ever. So it leaves us in a position that's quite fascinating as to dot 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 what happens next yes. and what should we do next.
0: Uh, wow, so, so lots of variation and a widening gap in some areas. And actually the, the interesting thing um, that, that you, you sort of picked up there and just drawing it to the listeners attention would be you mentioned sort of GPs as being part of urgent care. Now, in the classic UEC definition, we don't often include those. But actually, you're saying from the patient experience, some of those organizational silos we put in just, just don't really exist.
1: Oh, completely. I mean, because what's one of the really huge learnings that we've had at PEP Health is so getting into the head of the patient and understanding sort of, we have as healthcare professionals and sort of, we all have our own views about the definitions of this, that and the other, yeah. that all gets torn up when it comes to the patient. I mean, they just have their, it's what they need at that day, that week, and they don't worry about sort of what we think things mean. And so for many patients, their first touch point into the UEC world is, I don't feel well, I'm going to call my mm. GP, I'm going to try and make an appointment one way or another, and that is their their Point in terms of trying to get seen, and then it goes goes from there. Not always, but there's there's certainly a lot of patients that sort of view that as their starting point.
3: We had similar circumstances as, you know, where I just need to get in touch, and it doesn't matter who that is with. But then you add another layer on top of that, which is people who haven't been in England that long, and so there might be a shared understanding amongst people who are born and raised in England about what you should access and when, but that it's completely irrelevant for someone who's used to a completely different system.
0: And, and did that come across oh, in yeah, the focus? absolutely.
3: People saying, well, you know, in Italy, you, you go for your doctor first regardless. You know, you, your doctor might even call an ambulance for you. So there was these kind of, so people have these learned experiences that inform their current decision making.
0: Yeah,
2: and, and I think that loops back to something that we found in the literature. So, um, again, um, good and bad experiences and so on. And if if you look at the media over the years, talking about accident and emergency and people's use of accident and emergency, you often hear these stories about irresponsible use. And I remember a story uh, in, in the local papers where I lived some years ago, where there was a story about a woman who had taken her daughter into A&E because her daughter had chewing gum stuck in her hair. Now, I don't know whether that was true or not, but it's a classic story of irresponsible use of A&E. And uh, on the back of that, then, you, you, you get these kind of um, health services do these choose wisely campaigns, trying to tell people, think before you go and think which bit is it A&E or is it minor injuries or whatever. Now, this point though about for people newly arrived in the country, not used to our health system, how can they choose wisely if they don't really know how it all fits together? But even people who are born and brought up here, these things like A&E, minor injuries, walk-in centers, should I go to the pharmacy, is hard for people to navigate the system. So, So again, I think there's something there about how does the patient understand? And the point that Mark made about the role of the GP Again, we found from the the literature uh, that there were studies and surveys had been taken in A&E waiting rooms, and people were saying, well, I'm not really sure if I ought to be here, but the GP told me to come in, or NHS 111 told me Mm -hmm. to come in. So I think sometimes there's a sense that maybe the health professionals are actually more risk averse than the patients themselves are. And patients are pitching up there, not necessarily because they want to take advantage or jump the queue, but, well, my GP said I should maybe come in. So I think these are the kind of... And right at the intro to this, uh, Bryn, you said something about getting a balanced and nuanced understanding <laughs> yeah. of what's going on. And I think some of the stories you see in the media about irresponsible use are just crude and unreliable. And, and I think what we found from this whole different spread of methods mm-hmm. of research is, is exactly that, a, a much more balanced and nuanced view.
0: Wonderful. So now that we are approaching the, the end of our podcast I do need to tell you that the official findings for our patient experience research will be published on the Eastern AHSN website which is www.easternahsn.org backslash UEC from the 4th of November 2022 and you'll find the final rapid review report Infographics and data sets. Now, I've really enjoyed being part of this research. So I've really enjoyed having a discussion around it and actually seeing how we built sort of the built from the foundations of the le- rapid literature review with social listening, then focus groups, then interviews layered on that, and enabling us to get to sort of deeper and broader meaning. Um, but of course, I'm biased. So I'd like to go to our panelists and say. Just what was, for you, the, the best thing about this research? I'll, I'll come to Louis first. It's been a really positive
3: experience overall. Um, I think for me, and one of the ways I really like working is in this iterative nature. Um, mm. It can pose its own kind of challenges, but I think the ability to tweak the design, say, of the focus groups and the personas as we go to make sure that we maximise the value from our time and participants' time, Um, has been a really, really good experience overall.
0: Awesome. And Mark?
1: Yeah, well, I'd echo uh, Louis' point, Um, certainly that organic nature. It's sometimes been a bit more work, but actually I think in terms of the end results, going back, really sort of challenging each other thinking about how this all fits together I think the results will be better for it and I think just so many different mixed methodologies all together I'm not aware this has ever been done before so I think to sort of think of that from a a first and maybe a way of doing things again in the future I think it may be a hopefully a really neat way of uh, an exemplar for the future about how to look at these things.
0: Excellent and ending where we started miles.
2: Uh, well I would agree that the, the mixed methods approach I think has, start, ha, ha, has worked really well and including the dialogue we've been having as, as a group as we've gone through um, the process. Um, o- over the years uh, with my involvement with patient experience work, I've seen so much work done by healthcare providers or commissioners uh, where they need to find out something about patient experience and what they do is they call together a focus group or something like that and they start with a blank sheet and they, they kind of say well we're talking about this service, what do you think? And sometimes a wide open question like that can have real value, but actually, quite often, it means that your focus group actually has no focus at all. And I think what was really good with this piece of work was we did the literature review. We said, What do we already know from the structured uh, research? Then we did the social listening. What's coming in in real time in unmediated comments from patients and public themselves? And only then, when we'd worked out the learnings from that? Did we move into the focus group work? And then we rounded off with a questionnaire. So building, building, building the knowledge all the time from a very sound base to begin with. Uh, And uh, it's, it's been a wonderful approach and I think the findings will bear that out.
0: Wonderful. So all that it remains for me to say is thank you everyone for listening. Be sure to dial up for part two because that's when we're going to tell you what we actually found. And yeah, have a wonderful day wherever you are. And thank you everyone from the research consortium, I should say, for coming together physically for the first time in doing this to, to have this discussion here today. Good you right? Thank yeah. you.
3: Much. Thanks, man.